Hello there, listeners of the Bylines Network podcast. Happy Pride Month! We're only a couple of weeks late. This month, we are going to bring back our Articles of the Month format. Here we have articles from across the Bylines Network, from Northwest Bylines, from Cymru, and from Central. Please enjoy our queer-themed articles and stick around for me and Chris as we give you our recommendations of queer media to watch and read this month. Undefining Queer Exhibition, examining sexuality and gender in the 21st century. The Undefining Queer Exhibition is part of a participatory-led project which explores the Whitworth Gallery's art collection from an alternative lens to better understand what it means to be queer. An intersectional group of 15 to 20 individuals who identify as members of the LGBTQ community have worked to develop this exhibition. They provide detailed insights into the exhibition's art from a queer perspective, including new interpretations from historical and personal points of view. Following two years in development, the exhibition includes photography print, textiles and watercolour artworks spanning from the 15th to 21st century. One of the main aims of the Undefining Queer project is to develop the Queer Glossary. The Queer Glossary was developed by the community to help explore how LGBTQ identities should be defined in the gallery. Visitors are invited to contribute to the gallery by filling in comment cards to share what sort of language and ideas they associate with the artwork. The exhibition aims to examine five key themes, activism, chosen family, mythology, gender acts and queer gaze. Each of these play a specific role in the exhibition to offer insight into what it means to be queer and to update existing definitions of the term. The first of these themes is activism, which highlights a lack of representation for the LGBTQ community and the reclamation of slur words. Bilton said, I couldn't really see myself and my friends represented within the gallery or within the interpretation of any of the artworks, so it was a form of activism, really trying to get myself and my friends represented on the walls and the same with the participants as well. The theme of Chosen Family is to acknowledge the journey some queer individuals go through to find a sense of belonging. In some cases, a queer person's biological family may distance themselves from the individual who will then seek out a chosen family somewhere else. This area of the exhibition aims to focus on the circles participants gravitate towards and the family they find with friends, lovers or partners. Mythology focuses on the areas of gender and sexuality across history and the omission or censorship of such subjects. The collection looks back on the various historical periods such as ancient Greece to examine how stories and art can be interpreted through a queer lens. Bilton explains that the different perspectives allow from different understandings of art and history to be made. Works haven't necessarily been chosen because they are queered, but because they can be queered through that lens, he said. Gender acts is also a major theme at play within the exhibition, which looks at the performativity of gender and sexuality and how they are portrayed throughout history. For example, the exhibition looks into the existence of gender and sexual fluidity across different cultures. And this includes the hijra, which is a third gender existing in some South Asian communities, typically referring to an individual born biologically male who chose to dress and look traditionally feminine. The exhibition will also include woodblock print referencing kabuki theatre and depicting the third gender of the wakashu in traditional Japanese culture. The final theme of the exhibition is a queer gaze. This examines the work of artists over time who would identify as queer, the acknowledgement of that fact and how their art could be influenced by this. The Undefining Queer exhibition is part of the wider Queering the Whitworth project, which aims to challenge the heteronormative views within the gallery and rediscover missing LGBTQ narratives and ideas. 
The project includes guided tours of the exhibition and discussions into queer identity and language. We are really embedding queer practice into what the Whitworth does here, Bilton said. This is just the start of this, really. Bilton argues that projects such as these are not only important for re-evaluating the practices of museums and galleries, but also important to the queer community of Manchester. This was reflected on the exhibition's opening night, in which over 900 people attended a private viewing. The exhibition contains over 70 artworks from artists such as Ajima X, David Hockney, Maggie and Wolfgang Tillmans, and is free to view until the 3rd of December. Hello, my name is Brian Manley-Green, and I recently wrote an article for Central Bylines entitled Can Pride Continue to be a Celebration? After celebrating its 25th anniversary last year, Birmingham Pride once again returned at the end of May. But will the chilling anti-LGBTQ plus winds coming primarily from the USA mean that in future years celebration of progress turns back into a protest if rights are rolled back? Progress for the LGBTQ plus community over the past 25 years has been phenomenal. It's still hard to believe that King Charles and Queen Camilla legally married in each other in Windsor Register Office. The same place uh, and in a similar ceremony to Sir Elton John and David Furnish. The current Mayor of the West Midlands, Andy Street, just happens to be gay, which goes completely unnoticed, while in Birmingham's neighbouring borough Sandwell they have their second gay mayor in a row, Bill Gavin, who was incidentally instrumental who was instrumental in setting up Birmingham Pride all those years ago. All run-of-the-mill stuff nowadays. The rainbow flag can be found just about anywhere these days, especially throughout June, which is Pride Month. The flag is a symbol of inclusion and unity and seeks to make everyone feel welcome. Birmingham Pride is undoubtedly the city's biggest celebration of the year, bringing millions in additional revenue whilst also raising thousands of pounds for local charities. Of course, it's only with lots of corporate sponsorship that the event gets to be the size it is. This year, Birmingham-based bank HSBC is the main sponsor, and companies now fall over each other to be involved. I remember back in the early 1990s at Pride in London, getting a sample of PG Tips tea and thinking we'd arrived. Just a couple of years beforehand, any major brand would have run a mile from anything to do with the LGBTQ plus community. It couldn't happen here. There are worrying signs from the USA, however, which seem to provide many conservative politi politicians with their ideas. In many states, drag bans have been imposed supposedly to protect minors. In the UK, with our proud tradition of pantomime, it's hard to work out how drag can be seen as a threat. Such a shame these same minors can't be protected from being shot at school. In some states, US retailer Target have had to move Pride merchandise to the back of their store or stop selling it altogether due to protests. I've always thought one of the main benefits of marriage equality has been the dignity LGBTQ plus couples are given when visiting their spouses in hospital in times of sickness. 
Throughout the AIDS epidemic, things were made worse by couples not being able to see each other. But that's nothing compared with one of DeSantis' new laws, which means that in Florida, doctors will now be able to refuse to see a patient due to their sexual orientation. Surely that flies in the face of the Hippocratic Oath. The noises being made by our government about scrapping all EU laws and dragging us out of the European Court of Human Rights might well have sweeping implications for all communities, especially the LGBTQ plus community. Incredibly, even the Daily Mail is pleading for liberal values to be protected. Let the party continue. Throughout the Pride season, many people will be partying very late into the night. Long may this pre-celebration of the LGBTQ plus community's progress, but we can't afford to turn a blind eye to events happening across the world which have reversed progress. Let's hope we can always take the joy and celebration Pride brings for granted and that it doesn't have to become a protest in future years. This article comes to us from Bylines Cymru, written by Abigail Luxford-Noids. It's called It's My Shout. Disability hasn't stopped a journey into documentary filmmaking. If you'd asked me at the age of five where I'd be at 24, I probably would have said something like, at home with my mum, and I am actually. If you'd asked me the same thing when I was 10, I would have said either a cricket player or a photographer traveling the world. What I couldn't have imagined was seeing my name in the Radio Times, thanks to a Welsh scheme called It's My Shout. I've always had grand plans for my life. I've just never been sure how to make them happen. But recently, my breakthrough has come and at the perfect time. After finishing my master's degree, I now have my first documentary, Time to Heal, out on BBC Two Wales and on iPlayer. Downward Spiral. Like many people, I had to battle to get to where I am, mainly with my mental health and a bit with my education. Buckle up, I'm prepared to understand why I'm still shocked by having a documentary shown on the BBC. I grew up in a small town called Eccles in Kent. At 13, my life changed very quickly and in a bit of a weird way. It wasn't a great time for me or my family. I emotionally shut down and didn't cry, shout or argue. I became a bit of a robot. Not long after this, my parents got divorced while I was going through my GCSEs. Next came the turbulence. House to house, place to place, seven times in about three years. However, there was a light at the end of that winding tunnel. Mum found someone who made her happy, someone I now call my stepdad. The only thing was, Kevin was 200 miles away. So in September 2015, we moved to Cardiff. I remember my sister and I being worried about moving away from friends and family, but looking back, it was definitely in our best interests. Then there was the craziness of trying to get me into college. What are you going to do with an A-level in photography, asked mum. Take photos, I replied. Needless to say, I did psychology and sociology. I hated both and left with two U grades. Soon after moving to Wales, my health went into a downward spiral. My neck started twitching and jerking out of nowhere for a solid week. I barely got any sleep and we were frantically trying everything to resolve it. From magnesium spray to music, nothing helped. See, I wasn't born with this. I sometimes wonder what life would have been like if I was. Blackouts and boosters. Then my blackouts came as a sneak attack. They started the day before my birthday in 2017. After a particularly nasty bout of sickness, I collapsed on the floor. Mum and Kevin were called and an ambulance. Mum told the ops guy on the phone that I was going in and out of consciousness, 
hearing that was so worrying. I had no idea what was happening. I wasn't given a diagnosis in hospital, but was referred to a neurologist. From there, I finally got some answers, a diagnosis of psychological non-epileptic seizures, PNES, and functional neurological disorder, FND. Not to mention PTSD and the overwhelming anxiety that had plagued me since I was very little. I was doing my BTEC in creative media at this point too. Best £95 my stepdad ever spent, if you ask me. The best £95 I ever asked for. I wouldn't be where I am now if mum hadn't said, go and find something you want to do. But Kevin was the one who took me to college to help me try again and find my thing. I had five years of media education. Each year presented a new challenge with my health, new ticks or longer blackouts. It hasn't been easy in the slightest. I think my longest blackout lasted two hours. I'm constantly scared when I go into them. I tend to cry, try to bring myself out. When I can't, I panic. My tics have developed more and more and keep going all over my body. What I call my peg leg is never fun. I stick to one place and just can't move. If I try, my leg either kicks out or stays unmoving. I can't function correctly for however long this takes to run its course and wear off. These disorders make it extremely difficult to do things and just be normal. I can be absolutely fine one minute and completely flat and unable to move the next. Despite all of this, I completed a master's degree in documentary film at the University of South Wales, which feels absolutely amazing. I'm the first in my family to go to university and get a postgraduate degree. It was a huge pressure, but now it's done and over. I can't believe I actually did it. I didn't want to go to uni as I thought it was for academics, not creatives like me. It's my shout. I mentioned that I've got a documentary showing on the BBC. I created it through a scheme called It's My Shout. One of my tutors in uni helped me find it. It's My Shout is a scheme based in Wales that provides training and opportunities for people of all ages interested in gaining experience in film. They're passionate about nurturing, developing and discovering new talent. As part of my course, we needed to create a taster tape for a documentary we wanted to make. I made mine on ex-Royal Engineer Richard Perrett. He swapped fixing tanks for crafting watches. One of only a handful of watchmakers left in the UK, he uses watchmaking as a way not only to repair timepieces, but also repair himself. Not only did I get a distinction for the taster project, I received the feedback to try and get it commissioned. I submitted it on a whim, never once thinking it would go any further. When I got an email saying the BBC wanted to meet me, I froze, screamed and cried all at the same time. The pitch meeting was scary, but it was a moment I had to take. The next email said, we want to make your documentary. More tears, then onwards, an upward spiral. During the making of the documentary, it never truly sank in that it was going on to BBC Two Wales. It still hasn't. Watching it air live and now seeing it on iPlay is again something I never dreamed would happen to me. Richard was an amazing help. He was up for anything and confident to open up to us. I've needed to overcome a lot. I've had to adapt to this new, weird and annoying thing in my life that can slow me down. I try not to let it get in my way. I try to power on and understand what can make it worse so I can reduce the impacts of my disorders as much as possible. Doing creative work can work wonders. Both Richard and I can attest to that. There are many things I wish I could do, like scuba diving and driving, but I have an amazing support network, an employer that understands my disorders and has made me feel safe and happy. Plus, not many 24-year-olds can say they have a documentary on the BBC. Life has thrown me some unexpected curves and I have a long way to go. But how I take this life on, it's my shout.
We hope you enjoyed those Pride-themed articles from our regional bylines contributors. We'll link all of the hyperlinks to the articles in the description for the podcast so you can go and read them yourself. Now me and Jules are going to talk about some queer-themed literature, so films, TV, books, that we think you should consume this Pride Month. First off, I'm going with a book by Mae Martin, and it's called Can Everyone Please Calm Down? And it's one of my favourite books um, that I've bought in the last couple of years, and it's a 21st century guide to sexuality and queerness. So the book's written by Mae, who's a com- um, Mae Martin. She's a comedian, and um, she, they pronouns, and it's a comedic and relatable approach to sexuality and gender in the 21st century. In 21st century Britain, no doubt. Um, it's it actually it's really interesting because um, May was brought up between England and Canada, so they've got quite an a mixed upbringing and a diverse sort of perspective to bring on it, which is what I like so much. Um, and the book May demystifies sort of queerness, so they talk about it in such a relatable way, and it's really accessible and there's sort of a comedic value to it but it's covering these really important topics um you know it's a it's a funny and engaging way of of getting these issues to the fore and getting people talking about them and engaging um in my opinion it's it's a must read because the topics covered in it aren't like are quite complex you know they talk about gender identity sexuality um labels things like that and that's not an easy thing to discuss and also it's not an easy thing for people to get their head around. So the book frames all of that in a in a really easy way to read and an accessible way, but also a funny way. It's not just doom and gloom, but it is kind of important. And one thing I that struck me when reading the book was how relatable it was. Um, as a queer person, May approaches so many of these issues from her own perspective. And there are so many instances in the book where I go, oh my God, that, like, I, that's happened to me like for example um like and you I mean everyone's heard this at some point I guess you go oh these are my queer friends or these are my gay friends these are my lesbian friends I've told you about why is that necessary <laughs> you know <laughs> it's happened to me a few times it's like I'm just Chris <laughs> like what's me being gay got to do with it um and it's things like that um that, sh- that they talk about in the book and it is there's way more than that and and you you can read it yourself to find out but um it, it really does make you think and in may's ideal world labels wouldn't be necessary and that's what you take away from the book and you know at a first glance that kind of seems strange to a lot of people because some people think maybe that these labels are helpful that they're needed in society and they talk about the fact that these labels are needed when discussing oppression so you know for example especially in recent months sort of the attacks that the trans community have come on and the importance of having language and labels to discuss that and fight against it. Um, but the ideal world for May is that these labels aren't needed anymore because there shouldn't there, there shouldn't be a need for these conversations to be had. You know, we shouldn't need to be discussing sexuality. It should just be accepted. Um, and that's that's a that's a really admirable thing to aspire to. And we can only hope. Um, but like I say, it's not all doom and gloom in the book. Uh, it is. It does. It does cover some some comed- comedic topics, such as a uh, uh, one that stands out is her sort of crush for Bet, Bet- <laughs> a childhood crush of Bette Midler. <laughs> 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 yeah. 
which which is a recurring theme throughout the book. Um, but th there's a really lovely section at the end as well. So uh, obviously being a comedian, May has some uh, famous friends. And um, at the end of the book, there's like letters to their younger selves, which is actually a really lovely part. Um, it's quite thought provoking and or not confronting, but it, it does make you think. If, if this book was around when I was younger, it would have helped me so much um, to know that there are other people feeling the same way I do. Um, and the advice and support in the book, if I'd had that when I was a kid, <laughs> my life would have been so much easier. Fantastic. So um, I'm going to be extremely selfish um, and do recommend you three things that you everybody needs to watch or read. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry Chris is going to be recommending another thing at the end so uh, I'm going to be recommending two shows that are inextricably linked because of the subject matter they talk about but from two very different perspectives one is the National Theatre's professional recording of their rendition of Angels in America starring Andrew Garfield and the other is Russell T. Davies' show, It's a Sin. Now, these two shows, uh, and I, I'm going to clarify, I'm going to be calling them shows, even though they're on like two different mediums. Uh, these two shows talk about the ever jaunty, ever fun AIDS crisis of the 1980s. <laughs> and um, effectively, they're about two different perspectives from it because even though they both take part in uh, metropolitan cities with a big up, upcoming like gay and queer crowd, um, it is very fascinating to just see how different the, uh, the two countries dealt with it. With It's a Sin, uh, spoilers by the way, or not, I guess. With It's a Sin, it covers the entire thing. So we steadily see how our healthcare system eventually helped the community, even though it did start off like, oh, let's isolate these poor dying people from the rest of the world because we have no idea what's going on. Um, so at the start of it, a couple of the characters got treated very inhumanely. But it, it eventually did get better as we started to understand it. Whereas in America, it was a death sentence. Like, health insurance wouldn't cover it. If you got it, you'd be fired from your job. And eventually you just end up in a free hospital, dying slowly with people not wanting to touch you. Um, obviously, you need to go into it with the right mindset because these are very depressing i'm gonna say this now yeah very confirmed if you, triggered, if you get triggered by people slowly dying don't watch this <laughs> you definitely have to mentally prepare yourself for both of these um and uh, like like jules has already said that they're such important pieces of media to consume but because they cover such an important topic but i i, I didn't emotionally prepare myself to watch those and it was very difficult. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm, with It's a Sin, maybe with Angels in America too, 
um, but I, I can't, don't know the writer's history. But with It's a Sin, it's written by a guy who went through it and survived, by a gay man who went through it and survived. So this is very much from a familiar perspective. Uh, and there's this beautiful bit at the end where one of the characters confronts the mother of a gay man and just chastises her because Russell T Davies theorizes that the reason why a lot of gay men just accepted their fates was because they felt shame because of their upbringing. And so she chews out this parent and lays the blame solely at these people's feet, effectively. Even though, let's face it, our government didn't really help all that much either. I do really wonder how things would have turned out if we didn't have, you know, socialized healthcare. Because that's a scary thought, to be honest. Absolutely. And I mean, thank God for the progress we've made. Not not thank God, thank the scientists, thank the doctors, thank the healthcare. Thank yeah. If, if, you know, it's not a death sentence anymore. HIV and AIDS is not a death sentence anymore. Um, and actually, it's sad how much that isn't acknowledged within the queer community itself, even, you know, the the movement of um, you equals you, so undetectable. Being undetectable um, means if you are HIV positive and you take drugs, it means you can't pass it on. And even there is still a stigma within the queer community about HIV as is as much progress has been made, there's still more to do. And I, I remember when it's this in came out, it started this conversation. And, and I think it did a lot to bring that to the front of people's minds again, that there is still this stigma. Um, yeah. Right. And the other one I would recommend is a manga, uh, right out of the uh, Japanese Isles. Um, it's called My Brother's Husband. It is written by um, a Japanese gay man, and it is about uh, it's about how one can live as a gay man in a closeted society like Japan. And I feel like this is an important recommendation because it reminds us exactly why we still need pride, um, you know, besides all, all the other stuff. First and foremost, we still haven't won everywhere. You know, Japan is a leading country. It's part of the G7. It's one of the biggest economies in the world. People lord it for its culture and its trains and its history and all that kind of stuff. And yet it is the only country in the G7 not to have passed gay marriage laws. It, it, hell, they don't even have like civil partnerships apart from like a couple of cities. I never knew that. Yeah, they don't even recognize same-sex marriage or civil unions. It's the only G7 country that doesn't allow this. They have made good progress because there have been a couple of um, court cases recently that have said this is against the constitution, but Japan's an extremely conservative uh, nation, so it's it's doubtful that we'll see this anytime soon. So this is an important piece of media to remind people, first and foremost, there's still a fight to be fought. And particularly in, in Japan, I was talking about this with um, one of my trans friends. They said, it sounds like Great Britain during Section 28, you know, don't ask, don't tell, keep your head down. Because while I have heard that gay couples are kind of accepted, they're only accepted if they're quiet about it. 
Now, we didn't want to leave you guys on a depressed note. So, uh, Chris, what is your final recommendation? Please uh, don't be happy. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, my final re- recommendation was also going to be your recommend, one of your recommendations, because, um, well, it's a, it's a, it's a fantastic film, and. I think the fact that it was one of the first things that came to both of our minds straight away shows its importance in and the importance of its place in queer media. Um, it's the film Pride that was released in 2014. Um, yeah. And if you're not familiar with Pride um, or the story behind it, it depicts a group of lesbian and gay activists who raised money to help families affected by the minor strikes in the 80s. Um, and that formed what would that was at the beginning of what would become the lesbians and gays support the minors campaign and the it's film as the t-shirts eventually said yes 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 and, and you you still see them marching at pride and um, lesbian and gays support the minors and i mean i wonder whether the film brought more awareness to their movement and, and got more people involved and i mean i hope it did um because i think there's an offshoot of them i'm not sure if they're they're um linked but there is a uh, LGSM lesbians and gays support the migrants so um you know solidarity with refugees and and economic migrants who who face sort of difficult circumstances in the UK um but the film itself um it, it follows the story of Mark Ashton who was the head of the London branch of lesbian and, lesbians and gays support the minors um and they like I said earlier they're raising money to support the striking miners um, and they go to Wales and to donate this money and provide support there. And they were met with some animosity at the beginning when they arrived. Um, and it's important to bear in mind the context of which this story is set in. It's set in the 80s. It's set during the Thatcher premiership when Section 28 was a thing. Um, and there was hostility towards a great amount of hostility towards queer people, but also towards the miners who were striking at the time. and. There's a quote from the start of the film which sticks with me. Um, and the scene is Mark, who's heading the organisation, is collecting donations with his friends. And they're outside a bookstore called Gaze the Word. And that bookstore still exists. Uh, it's, a, it's a bookstore that specialises in queer literature. So I would de- definitely recommend a visit. It's in London, I think, near Russell Square. Um, but in the film... Um, some people are donating, some people spit at them and shout abuse. Um, and Mark tells his friends to keep going because the only people, the homophobic British newspapers treated worse than the gay people were the minors. And if anybody know what that treatment feels like, it's us. And he refers to us as the queer community at that time. And that sticks with you because the film and the underlying message of it is a story of friendship, solidarity, and the importance of intersectionality and in standing up for those who are oppressed. And see, uh, for me, I completely agree with everything that you have just said, but the scene that I think signifies that message much, much better than, than that scene, which is obviously a good example of it, is that a scene where they're at um, a castle in Wales. I know, shock horror. Um, where the head of the mining, the head of the mining union is talking with the head of, uh, you know, gays and lesbians support the miners. And he's talking about a banner that they have stored up. And the banner is simply of two hands shaking. 
And he says, it's a very simple message. I support you, you support me. And that's very much like flows all throughout the movie, the highs and lows of what it means with two people who have absolutely nothing to do with each other, standing in solidarity with each other. Absolutely. And this, the scene at the end that never fails to make me cry, I'm already starting to well up thinking about it, is, um, spoiler alert, for a historical um thing if you're part of history, um, you know how it ends if if you're if you, if you were alive at the time or know anything about history you'll know how it finishes but um i'll let you go on jules um the miners the, every single welsh un, minor union joins the next pride after um the the miners strike failed unfortunately but it's literally just them going you scratch my back now i'm going to scratch yours and over it, over this like massive march down Westminster Bridge, there's like text saying what happened to all the characters that weren't made up for the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and as it slowly zooms in on the banner that I described earlier, it details exactly how when the Labour uh, group decide to vote on whether or not they should support gay rights, um, it passed with the motion of one extremely significant um, union in the UK and that was the National Union of Miners LGSM effectively gave us the gay right revolution that we had <laughs> in the early 2000s and that to me is beautiful you know yeah, it's why it's why to this day the LGBT community still stands with striking workers and why striking workers still stand with the LGBT community to the point where there are tons and tons of unions who are just passing motions going, yeah, we support late, we support trans rights. Why wouldn't we? And I mean, that, that moves neatly onto the, the point I was going to make sort of this film. And it's only really coming back to revisit it and watch it again in the last sort of week or so. It, the message of the film is even more important today. And it reminds all of us that there are forces out there who want to oppress us and people like us and our and our siblings such as the trans community um it's a, the films a reminder that um it's more important now than ever to stand with those who are being oppressed and to make sure that you help to amplify their voice and make sure they're heard and look after them and stand with them make sure they're respected and it's a the film is a beautiful message but it's one that will be forever important i think thank you very much listeners of the bylines network for joining us on this very special pride themed episode and i leave you with this message from the pride community there are more of us than there are than there are of them. Keep fighting and don't let them get you down. Happy Pride Month. Happy Pride Month.